The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, episode number 12. Every month or every couple of months, we uh, choose two movies, we watch them, we come together, we discuss, we throw it out to you, the listeners, for your comments. And uh, this time we're talking about two Shakespeare adaptations, or at at least loose Shakespeare adaptations. Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho and 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, so let's uh, get some introductions out of the way. My name is Sean from uh, the website filmjunk.com. My name is Kurt from uh, Twitch and Row3.com. Marina from Row3.com. And I'm Andrew from Row3. So um, I guess we're going to start with my own private Idaho. Now this, um, I actually believe I have to take the credit for suggesting this one which may actually come around to bite me on the ass, because <laughs> I don't think uh, this may be the first movie that we all have bad things to say about, for the most part. But um, I guess uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, that was, was that chosen by Paul? Is that why that was originally in there? Correct. That's correct. Marina so, suggested it, right? Right. And it was, yeah, but I think it went into a poll. Awesome. And so then when we were trying to think of things to pair with it, uh, for some reason, this movie popped into my head because A, I hadn't seen it, and B, I knew it also had a Shakespeare kind of thing going on. So um, so I don't even really know how to introduce it, but I guess it's um, one of... Uh, well, I guess it's probably Van Sant's second major kind of big film uh, after Drugstore Cowboy, stars Keanu Reeves and uh, River Phoenix. And, um, and of course, as we will get to, it's... Uh, you know, two movies with, um, you know, stars that are now deceased, which is kind of interesting as well. But, um, yeah, the story, I don't know if there really is much of a story. I mean, it's about two drifters who are kind of, um, I guess, male prostitutes and one who's uh, on a search for his his mother. And uh, so it's kind of a road trip movie as well. Um, who wants to, I guess, start with some opinions on uh, my own private Idaho. Uh, I could start with that. Okay. I actually, I actually watched my own private Idaho about a year ago, and I remember getting about 20 minutes, 25 minutes into it, and really kind of just losing interest um, and finding myself doing other things. I remember like getting on the Internet and just sort of half paying attention to it, and by the end I just I just didn't care. So I, w- I actually watched it last night, and then I watched it again tonight when I got home from work, or most of it again. And uh, my opinion of it has not changed at all. I find it so flat. I find it so uninteresting. Is the is the word? It's it's so weird of- because the movie itself has so many sort of voyeuristically lurid elements in there and there's always interesting actors popping up but i i agree the movie uh the movie cannot sustain any sort of energy i guess that t- 
ties in because the main character suffers from narcolepsy, but the movie is actually also uh, um, it's pretty sleep inducing. And I and I mean, this is from a huge fan of Gus Van Sant's Jerry and Last Days and Elephant. Uh, it's quite impressive how this one misses its mark. Yes, I agree completely. I I don't I don't know if it's a symptom of poor characterization or what it is it feels like it just sort of jumps around from vignette to vignette these two characters it has to do a lot with uh like different father figures for these two drifters and they the 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 father figures that are constantly introduced and then taken away are just never fleshed out and never get enough screen time for you to really care about them or their relationships with the guys i found it really really disjointed and that i think is what partly what makes it so uninteresting it doesn't help that it starts off i thought it started off really well with that um the visualization of the um uh of the sex act and this house comes flying out of the sky i thought wow that's kind of cool never seen something like that before but then from there it goes right to sleep it's like how do you go from that to nothing i mean it's just it's boring as hell I can't believe I'm seeing that about a uh, movie with Keanu Reeves. It's boring. Yeah, he's like your crush, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is so awful. Like, I mean, I've seen some of his early films, and he's he's pretty bad. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah, he's a good-looking guy, but he can't act, at least not very well. And I, that's okay. I don't mind. But he's just, like, sleepwalking through this role, and it works for some roles, but for others, it's just painful. And, I mean, River Phoenix, for, you know, all the badness of the movie, he's really captivating. I found myself really um, buying into his character, at least to an extent. And he was interesting to watch, even though I didn't really – his storyline, I could care less, to be completely honest. But Keanu Reeves is just, like, walking through this. It's like sleepwalking. Well, well no, it's no. Like, I, I would think Keanu Reeves, to me – uh, it wasn't like he was sleepwalking through the movie. I think it was more like he was either too passive or too aggressive. He couldn't find the right tone for that character. And that underscores a lot of what you said I, I, I'm, I'm on board with. I find almost all the ideas that the film had, the the main character sort of living in a dreamlike state, constantly under threat from his own narcolepsy, uh, the the fact that Keanu Reeves' character is sort of like a poverty tourist, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the the sort of uh, like lost boys or whatever that live in that abandoned apartment, and then the sort of detour to Italy. Um, I I liked all of the ideas the movie put forth, and the I liked the um, every time right before he was about to fall asleep, he would have these sort of flashbacks to what he would perceive would be his happy family if he didn't end up, you know, with really no options. I mean, his arc is very depressing. Keanu Reeves is there like a tourist, but his character is stuck there. And they visualized sort of what he wanted, just a very simple, just a mother, just someone that would love him unconditionally. Um, Yeah, so the ideas were all excellent. Everything was in place to have a very fascinating, riveting movie, but... Perhaps what Andrew said, the way it's chopped up and disjointed and told in disconnected set pieces or or scenes uh, and then trying to stitch them all together in a in a meaningful way. I don't know. I've seen movies that are made like this and I've seen them work. But 
I don't know. It must be an inexperienced thing on on Van Sant, or he went too ambitious with the uh, story. I also read that it was actually two screenplays he merged together, and maybe the film shows symptoms of two discrete stories that he had had well-developed that he sandwiched together to make this film. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I didn't know that, but that totally, like, that was the point I was going to bring up is that, I mean, okay, it's loosely based on Henry IV Part One. And I don't know, like, I haven't read it, so I don't know exactly what parts relate to that. But it felt to me like whenever it kind of got to, like you said, the Lost Boys stuff with, like, the the father figure there, it seemed like, and, you know, and he was talking kind of in the Shakespearean English, and it just seemed totally like a different movie from the sort of road trip um, in search of the, the mother and, and the kind of re- relationship between the two guys. Um, and like, I could have, I, I could have seen maybe a movie being salvageable out of that side of things. But as soon as he kept throwing in the, the Shakespearean stuff, I was just like, we're like, I don't even know what this is trying to accomplish. It was just too jarring for me. Yet the scene where they're on the road and, uh, well, there's two scenes that really struck out that I really enjoyed was one where you have, um, uh, Keanu Reeves, River Phoenix, I believe, flee from the Red Hot Chili Peppers and yep. some girl who I didn't recognize in a diner. And, and a guy that looked a lot like Joaquin Phoenix, but it wasn't because I looked it up at the end. I don't know who the actor was, but he reminded me very much of Joaquin Phoenix. They're just sitting in a diner trading hustler stories. And I like that scene. That scene was very uh, incaptivating. And the other scene... Um, that I liked was the, the scene where they're, uh, where it's just the two of them in front of the campfire, which actually echoed Jerry, um, where you have uh, uh, Casey Affleck and, and Matt Damon around the campfire, except in Jerry, the, the, the whole scene is inane. Uh, like they're just talking about like some sort of command and conquer video game or something. And in the campfire scene in my own private Idaho, it's actually, I think it's the linchpin of the movie where you actually really, get some insight into River Phoenix's character and what he's actually looking for. And then you also see in that scene how uh, Keanu Reeves is absolutely not the person that's going to give it to him. The way he he sort of just gives um, River Phoenix characters lip service uh, to the thing, where and Phoenix is just very convincingly pouring his heart out in a very desperate way. And Keanu Reeves is like, yeah, I'm your friend, dude, but emotionally i'm gonna let you sink on this one Mm -hmm. yeah and actually um well according to wikipedia here it says that that scene was supposed to be shorter the campfire scene was supposed to be shorter but uh river phoenix actually rewrote it himself into like a longer scene so he was the one who kind of took that on and said you know let's turn this into something uh a little bit more key for my character i guess and you know i think um River Phoenix for me is kind of the one sort of strong point of the movie. I mean, like he, this was one of the last big roles, I guess he did uh, before his death. And, you know, for all the kind of comparisons, I guess you can make to Heath Ledger and, you know, people dying, actors that die young and then people kind of like maybe put them up on a pedestal. I think this kind of showed that he really had, a ton of acting talent and who knows what he could have done had he not died. But, um, yeah, 
I think it's cool to watch for that. Um, if, oh, oh, go ahead, Marina. Sorry. No, no, go, go for it. Well, I, you know, I was gonna say that there are a couple of things that I kind of like. Um, Marina already mentioned one. I mean, the um, the beginning. Well, first of all, the whole the whole beginning, the first maybe like fifteen or twenty minutes to me felt very. And this is kind of a cliche thing to say now, but very Lynchian. Um, there's just, it's very odd the way the characters um, present themselves and the the sorts of dialogue they are and the, and the way it's presented and then Grace Zabriskie shows up who rules um, absolutely yeah, is awesome so I had this whole um, like feeling that David Lynch had to have something to do with this and then she shows up and I was like oh for sure it is um, I looked on according to the IMDB Lynch has nothing to do with this movie but um, yeah, when Marina mentioned when they dropped the house, I mean, it's like somebody sat down and said, how do we symbolize an orgasm? Mm-hmm. I know, let's hoist up a house by a crane and drop it in the middle of a road. I mean, that was real. That was awesome. Um, well, it's also his narcolepsy too, right? It's not just an orgasm. Oh, it's oh, also oh, a good right. metaphor for his narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff is really creative to look and, uh, um, Actually, the entire film aesthetically for me, I really enjoyed. I thought it was very, um, I don't know, just really rich. Lots of lots of colors and texture that just blended. I mean, I think the film looked really nice. It's just, unfortunately, I didn't care about any of it. The, the Clockwork Orange credits, the, uh, mm-hmm. the um, pastel light title cards with white text. I also like the scene with the Hustler uh, magazine covers where they're all yeah. talking to each other through magazine covers. It felt too stylized to actually belong in the movie, even when you're saying Lynchian. That scene felt wrong in that movie, but it was still a really neat scene. <laughs> yeah, and um, think, go ahead, Marina. Oh, I was going to say my favorite scenes in the film are the two sex scenes. I really like the way that those are shot. With these sort of still images, though they're not really stills, because uh, the actors, there is a little bit of movement. But I, I, I don't know. I really, I really liked that. It was um, a little nicer than actually seeing it in action. Yeah, um, something more tasteful to that. I, I was actually going to bring up that exact point. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting way to do it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I don't know if that comes from was Van Sant a photographer before he uh, got into film or I'm not even sure, but um, it just kind of had that kind of, yeah, it was like photography on film kind of feel. I also think it was a Mm -hmm. bit risque to, uh, to do a full uh, gay sex scene like they did in, like he did in milk for that matter. um, Or uh, like uh, they did in Brokeback Mountain. I think it was a bit, risque to do that in 91 and i don't think van sant was although he has a weird streak where he makes non-commercial and then he makes commercial films his original films are both of them and drugstore cowboy and this uh walk the line in some ways and yeah i i thought that was a great way to get a red to totally get it across but also keep mm-hmm. with this sort of stagey arty like there were times when the staginess of the movie totally failed for me like when all of the kids are in the abandoned apartment building and you you have yes the 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 um 
father figure gives his like almost word for word out of the text soliloquies and the kids sort of run and dance around like it is a Shakespeare play on stage um, with the sort of heightened enthusiasm that works on a stage but does not work on film. And so every time that he tries to push it into a stagey manner, I found the film struggled with me. I hated all the scenes with the the kids talking in turn and and it, it just felt so amateurish and when you contrast that to like the beginning where uh he checks like he's got his stopwatch and his bag falls over and then he's on the street and he falls over that that's such a rich evocative engrossing beginning to a movie and then when it turns into the staginess or like a or with the hustler covers or when it starts to get too showy i mean that all of that stuff works perfectly in to die for which is a digression on modern media but in the sort of fusion between hustler boys and and street kids and 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 old time shakespeare I, I don't think that stuff was as organic it just it it's just all clumsily jumbled together and like andrew said it's exhausting it it, mm-hmm. it, it makes me not want to care well, I, actually, there's, I guess, kind of an interesting parallel to be drawn. Like you mentioned, Brokeback Mountain and, you know, the fact, I guess, that we are going to be talking about a Heath, a Heath Ledger film. But this, in some ways, was kind of like a precursor to, I guess, Brokeback Mountain, you know, like it definitely, you know, the same setting in a lot of a lot of the scenes. Uh, and it just, yeah, it reminded me more than once of that of that movie. But um yeah, like you said, I guess it was a different time. Not, you know, it wasn't quite as um, out and out, uh, you know, with the the sexuality as as Brokeback Mountain was. Well, well and you think uh, how many uh, gay characters were there in sitcoms in '91? None. Uh, how many uh, um, gay themed, uh, like funny or, or, or musical oriented films were like explicitly gay characters at the time. I mean, Van Sant is uh, somewhat of a pioneer on making uh, gay cinema into the mainstream. I mean, he's taken it to the absolute highest level now with milk, but between him and who's the guy who did Hedgewig and the angry imp inch and uh, short bus and oh, yeah, John it's... Cameron Mitchell, the two of them, I think they collaborate a lot. Um, uh, they've produced, like they produced Tarnation um, together. Uh, that, so this was a, a real, I think, real groundbreaking film. Uh, and the two actors were not gigantic at the time, but um, well, River but- Phoenix had, had like Mosquito Coast and um, Stand By Me. and Well, I was going to say Keanu Reeves in some ways. I mean, it was kind of surprising because this was basically after he had started Bill and Ted's and it was the same year he did Point Break and the Bill and Ted's sequel. Well, he also did, uh, in between, the first serious role that I saw Keanu Reeves in, uh, I believe, was uh, a small part in Dangerous Liaisons, the Stephen Frears movie. Right, That was in the 80s, where he's actually pretty good in that. Um, And I, I thought he flirted with being really good in this movie, but there was just a bit of him over emoting or under emoting uh at the it just made the performance herky-jerky and the transfer like the vignette nature of the movie where he just decide up and decides that his tour is over um 
yeah, it just it, it it's too fast. It doesn't happen. I, I, but I struggle with this when I watch the movie. Like, it's not a movie I enjoyed watching. I didn't enjoy the experience of watching it. But also, the disjointed nature and the ethereal nature of all the supporting characters is totally in line with River Phoenix's affliction. Like, he sees things only in bits and pieces, and he falls asleep during a lot of the. Like, he falls asleep in um, one city and then wakes up in the next and doesn't know how he got there. And. So he's always playing catch up and he always doesn't understand characters' motivations and and uh so the the structure of the movie mirrors that very well. It just didn't work for me. Like in theory, almost everything about this movie works. In practice when I'm watching it, I I was struggling um mm-hmm. to for it to keep my attention. The last thing I'll say, though, is uh, when Andrew mentioned David, uh, David Lynch, uh, the one scene that absolutely locks this movie into Lynchian territory is when Udo Kier, awesome genius actor that he is, does the Dean Stockwell bit from Blue Velvet. He sings with the lamp. Yeah, um, yeah. And that whole sequence, which is followed by gay sex in posing, um, that sequence is as riveting to me as the the scene in Blue Velvet. And I, I was kind of disappointed when it ended so quickly. Uh, so I would love to know um, uh, how much of a fan Gus Van Sant is of David Lynch. You don't see it in any of his later work, but that's spot on to, to, to point it out in, uh, in this film. Well, so I... I was kind of curious because um, you know I think this movie was largely critically acclaimed when it came out. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, did anyone was, have the Criterion disc to watch, or did everyone just find it in other ways? I, I bought the Criterion disc, so I've got it. I haven't seen the extras. I was so disappointed by the film. I didn't. I did, couldn't put up the energy to watch anymore. I will at some point because now I've shelled up the money and it's sitting on my shelf, but not anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I watched the Criterion version, but I don't know, whatever. I, I'm not going to watch any extras either. Well, I guess I was just going to bring up, um, well, I found it interesting. Ebert, um, I don't know if it says what he gave the movie, but there's a quote from him here that says, the achievement of this film is that it wants to evoke that state of drifting need, and it does. There is no mechanical plot that has to grind to a Hollywood conclusion and no contrived test for the heroes to pass. Which, to me, sounds like he's saying this is a great movie because it goes nowhere. <laughs> you know, like, and, and I have no problem with movies that go nowhere. I, I just I don't like them that go nowhere in this particular manner. Like, well... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it, I don't know. I, I To me, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the, the context of when this came out, 1991. I mean, this. I think part of it was that it was an independent film and it was kind of maybe doing things that people hadn't seen before. And I think now when we're going back and looking at it, it's just kind of like, you know, we're comparing it to Lynch and other other things that, are better, I think, in some ways, or just... Oh, no, absolutely. I, I, with me, Gus Van Sant is so spotty for me. I, I, I mean, I love oh. his, I love his uh, like, death trilogy, The Elephant, Jerry, and um, uh, Last Days. And I love, love, love To Die For. And I really, really like Drugstore Cowboy. But Finding Forrester, the Psycho remake... 
Goodwill Hunting, I loathe. And <laughs> this movie, I mostly loathed uh, My Own Private Idaho. Um, and Milk, I, I just found Milk just sort of sat there. It, it was mm-hmm. handsome, and the acting was solid. And, and I guess you could say that that's the same thing with My Own Private Idaho. It looks great. And the acting, at least on the River Phoenix side and the Grace Zabriskie, Udo Kier, James Russo side, and uh, what was his name, William... Richard or whoever plays the um, uh, the the street father, not not the Keanu's real father. He he was pretty flat, but um, yeah, I, I found the acting, particularly River Phoenix, was great. But the movie, I it didn't do much. It, it just didn't. I'm, I'm surprised at um, at how high the score is on IMDb too. It's got a seven out of ten. I'm. Well, I'm the IMDb shocked. is a weird. Uh, yeah, who knows what yeah, that means? <laughs> that's, it's a meaningless. IMDb numbers are meaningless. It is weird oh. that uh, Shakespeare is fully credited as like a co-writer yeah. of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's all sorts of Shakespeare, re- like quaint Shakespeare references. They're almost goofy. Like uh, at one point, Keanu Reeves is drinking a beer, and the brand name is Falstaff, <laughs> and uh, um. There, there's a there's I, I saw three or four little yeah I, goofy I remember things, seeing something too um, I can't remember which what it was, which of course uh, ten things I hate about you is totally loaded with them as well uh, but uh, I, I did even in the Van Sant movie which I would not have thought that that I would see but um, there were like these goofy Shakespearean in jokes scattered throughout the text but I think Shakespeare is credited because several of the monologues or soliloquies in the film, Keanu Reeves in the alley, the, 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 the father, almost every time they're in the abandoned apartment, uh, I believe when they, they do the looting of their own gang <laughs> in the movie, when the gang steals, I don't know, it's like concert tickets and cash or something, and then they dress up and rob themselves, essentially, and then they come back with it. That, that, that's very Shakespearean in intent. I've never read uh, Henry IV or Henry V, or, or however hit those series of plays are connected. I, I've seen the Branagh film, but uh, I don't know the source material uh, well enough to say what parts were mined and what parts weren't. But I, I think it's pretty obvious when he's in uh, street kid road movie mo- mode, and it's pretty obvious when he's in Shakespeare mode and the movie suffers because he can't gel the two properly. Yeah. Um, all right, well, any final thoughts then on uh, My Own Private Idaho? No, I think we should move on to a, a better movie. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to mention the the one thing that struck me weird in the movie is when he's about to have um, sex with Udo Kier the first time, he's watching The Simpsons in there and uh it, it's sad and pathetic that i knew the exact episode and it didn't parallel what was going on on screen but right before the uh, alien ship tries to suck homer up and the tractor beam's not strong enough the movie cut away i i was like i wanted to see that scene in the <laughs> simpsons and then they cut away maybe that says something about the movie you're watching that, when that you're like says i want it all. the simpsons <laughs> it says it all it's too bad because i you know i uh, like you said it, it if it's a groundbreaking movie, maybe we've been spoiled because there's so many movies that do this and better because they've had time to build and think things through a little more. And 
uh, maybe not shoehorn two scripts together and, and all the other different things that when you look back at this, it's, it's a bit, for me, it was a bit shrug worthy because I've seen a lot of other filmmakers, um, do this type of movie better. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, the whole Shakespeare thing for me, it's like if you're going to adapt Shakespeare, and I know, you know, there's there's movies that straight out adapt it. There's movies that try to modernize it. And then there's movies that kind of try to just weave it in there. And like sometimes that works. And sometimes I'm like, okay, are you just throwing in Shakespeare to sound like, you know, literary or something? Like, I don't know. I know like Shakespeare is kind of the backbone for so many of these stories that we see on screen nowadays. But sometimes it's just a little... I don't know. Questionable. It, it in this case, very questionable. This story could have been told. The Shakespeare and stuff doesn't have like, or the fact that you're aware that it's Shakespeare does not necessarily have a lot of resonance based on the story, except for the, you know, he's in a narcoleptic dream state all the time. So you have, you know, theater and reality and poverty and orgasm and everything all stewed together but um it's one of these it's very difficult to make a subjective point of view movie like a point of view where you're supposed to feel as disoriented or drugged as the main character i mean i mean even something that's technically functioning on all cylinders like um christopher nolan's memento you don't exactly i think it tries to put you in the frame of mind of someone who is disoriented all the time. But I mean, the movie doesn't work because of that. The movie has a bunch of other things. And I just can't think of very many movies that manage to get across how the main character is feeling visually. The diving bell and the butterfly might be a good example. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I found myself uh, for the diving bell and the butterfly, not feeling like he felt, but being marveled that they would even attempt to do that, which to me, meant that that aspect i love that movie but the aspect of that movie uh failed I, I the only movie i can think of that really hit me hard when it tried to visualize it was um in uh copland and children of men when the character and, and for that matter the international um when a character is hit by like an explosion or something and they're deaf right for a little while and you've got that ringing in their ears and so you are seeing the images without getting the sound i i liked um all three of those movies did that pretty effectively and and i felt not for the whole movie but for that scene i felt like wow i've just been shocked and and hit with that force and i'm you know sitting there punched in the gut and and uh looking up from the movie right all right well let's uh move on and talk about uh, i guess Another Shakespeare adaptation that, um, in in some ways, I think it's less in your face. I mean, to me, I haven't read The Taming of the Shrew, so I didn't even really know specifically what stuff comes from it and what stuff doesn't, but you, maybe you guys can talk a bit about that. So this is directed by uh, Gil Junger. Is that how you say his name? Um, I don't really know what else he's done. I guess he, he did recently get smarts Bruce and Lloyd out of control, the direct to video, uh, <laughs> spin off from the get smart feature film. I mean, I not, uh, he also did black Knight, starring Martin Lawrence. 
So some classic <laughs> stuff here. sounds awful. Was man. he involved in the... They, they turned 10 things into a TV show at one point. Was he involved in that? Oh, it's yeah. coming. It's coming. It hasn't happened yet. Oh. Oh, really? It's coming in 09. Yeah. Really? Oh. Yep. <laughs> this movie's 10 <laughs> years old. This movie's 10 years old. I would have figured spinoff TV show might would have come and failed miserably like they always do at this point. No, no, it's coming. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so I guess, I don't know, Marina, I, if, seeing as this was kind of your nomination to begin with, do you want to, um, baby. yeah, why no, don't you... I just, well, we're always, I, I'm always complaining that we don't watch enough romantic films, I guess. And, uh, this is one of my favorites just because it's smarter than your average movie. It reminds me a little bit of clueless in that, uh, it's easy to swallow. It has, Really nothing to say, but it's fun, and it's a little bit smarter than your average teen movie. And I'm all over the teen movies, so, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, I Again, this is a movie that I own because, uh, because I bought it way back when, um, after I rented it, and I remember really liking it. And I thought for sure that I was going to watch this again for, for this show um, and just look, watch it and go, huh, I don't really know what I was thinking, but no, I watched it again and it's, there's a lot going on in there. It's a lot mm-hmm. of fun. It's, um, I just, you know, it's, it's definitely teeny bopper bubblegum junk food on, on some level, but on another level, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there that, uh, it's pretty interesting and just, um, a whole lot of fun. I was reminded in some ways of, of brick, uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick, only in that, I mean, maybe it's because of the Joseph Gordon-Levitt connection, mm-hmm. but but I think it's partly because of the dialogue is so, it's just not realistic, it's just ridiculous, unrealistic dialogue, that, uh, you know, which Brick does in a, in a different kind of way, but it just felt a lot of it was way too sophisticated for how teenagers talk. Talk, yeah. yeah. But, but that's okay, I mean, that's part of what I like about it. It doesn't need to be realistic. So I don't know that, that that's one aspect uh, of many that I think is, is really good about this movie. And, and it starts off right away too with, um, the Allison Janney. Um, first of all, the movie's got a crazy cast of like character actors that you just go, Holy shit. He's in this. I was... She's in this. And, and, uh, so you start off right away with Allison Janney, just, speaking not like any other teacher or authority figure in a high school would ever <laughs> speak. And it's just instantly the movie is likable. Instantly, you're just ready to see what's going to happen next after the monologue from Alice and Janney. So, yeah, yeah, good fun. Well, I guess I can jump in and just say that um, I I wasn't a huge fan of the movie. This was actually my first time seeing it. And, um, I mean... As you can probably expect, I mean, I think it's a little bit dated, um, 10 years old, like, you know, it's full of music that's 10 years old and Mm -hmm. it's very, you know, like all the bands that are playing in the movie, you know, are completely gone and forgotten now. Like, I think, was it Save Ferris? Were they one of the bands that was up there? And, um, I forget who else, but... Letters from Cleo. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, it's, I don't know, I guess, um... Maybe it's part of the problem for me again is that I'm not catching where all this 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 sort of clever Shakespeare interplay comes in. 
Um, well, let me let, let me enlighten you, all right, <laughs> if I may, <laughs> on that. One thing that I really liked about this, and it's totally, uh, I'm surprised Sean, growing up in the Ontario school system, didn't have to do Taming of the Shrew. It was our grade nine curriculum. But anyway, uh, I think we even got to watch the episode of Moonlighting where they did the taming of the shrew in 45 minutes uh but anyway awesome um the thing that i liked about this and which was totally obviously the shakespeare plotting instant was the fact that bianca who is the um sub character she's the thrust for the for the movie she's what sets the plot in motion but she's really Mm -hmm. the minor character because she's not the shrew she's like the the perfect little girl that the that everyone wants and they're willing to have to put up with the crap of her sister because of the rules of the father or the rules of the house but the fact that halfway through the movie she actually makes the right decision if most romantic comedies will extrude the stupidity to the maximum length to keep the conflict going and keep you vested in the fact of you know these characters have so much stacked against them and when she's given the choice between Joseph Gordon-Levitt's sensitive kind Michael Sarah-ish um milk toast kind of guy and the ultra vain ridiculous over the top self-centered model character she comes to the right or the you know the 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 right decision probably 45 minutes into the movie and i was thinking where's the where's this movie got to go if usually that's the be all and end all of the movie but of course because it's shakespeare he would have the central character not be the main character um and actually there's a few modern films or recent films like uh vicky christina barcelona plays with that a little bit uh, uh rachel getting married plays with that a little bit where the actual principal character or main character is not necessarily the narrative thrust or or the compelling center of the movie and uh, i mean julia styles who is the center of the movie um i can see why she her stock was so high in the in the late 90s and early 2000s and why she was in so many films because she's really warm in this movie I, i really bought her every single step of the way i i love that the movie made her smart uh she was i mean the movie went out of its way to constantly underscore that with her you know the books that they made sure the camera lingered over so that you could read sylvia plath or 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 whatever but i mean every time she had to convincingly play a a character that's got a chip on her shoulder because she's pretty smart and everyone else is beneath her. Um, she still made that warm. I, 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 I thought that was fabulous performance from her. I guess for me, like I think clueless comparisons are relevant, but I think I, I think I like clueless more. Like I, I, I don't know. I found like a lot of the, the humor and stuff in this really was just, just fell flat. It just was too, too cute or too slapsticky yeah and and there wasn't enough like i don't know i guess sort of uh no deeper humor there that i found it was all very surface um you know heath ledger is interesting though watching him in this and i mean i for me uh even when it was announced that heath ledger was going to be the joker 
even at that point, even though he had done, you know, Brokeback Mountain, I still thought of him as this kind of teen heartthrob guy. That was still the image I had in my head. And uh, even though this is the first time I'm seeing this movie, clearly that this is kind of the the face he was in at this point. And, uh, you know, he, he has definitely a presence on screen, but I don't know that uh, watching this, you get really uh, a feel for what he would go on to become. I don't know. Do you guys... Really? No, I, I completely disagree. When I was watching this, I never thought much of Heath Ledger. I saw him in, uh, was it Monster's Ball? Um, um, oh, right. Yeah. Yep. And I saw bits and pieces of uh, A Knight's Tale. I never watched the full movie because I didn't like it. You need, um, oh, you have to watch the whole thing. It's really good. And what else did I see him in? There was one other film that I saw him in prior to Brokeback Mountain. And I thought, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have much of an opinion of him at all. I mean, he was good in Brokeback Mountain, but I, I, I still thought he wasn't, like, amazing. I, I found his performance in Brokeback Mountain was an exercise in highly practiced grumbling. Um, I actually thought that Jake Gyllenhaal had a lot more work to do in that movie. Uh, and likewise, um, Anne Hathaway and Michelle Williams had a lot more to do in that movie. I didn't... Anyway, when I watched 10 Things I Hate About You, I'm like, oh, wow, now I actually see the potential of what they saw because he takes, like, a piece of shit role and completely sells it with charisma when he had launches into that musical number That's, that that is one that moment should that. have failed like that was just too much and he sold it just completely sold it and even at the very end of the movie where she's got the guitar sitting there and he has to still come back in like the cocky son of a bitch that he is and give his juno-esque i knew all the time but i love you thing he totally fucking sells it and Anytime Julia Stiles and, and Heath Ledger were on screen together, they had way more chemistry, chemistry than this movie necessarily deserved because, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of it was slapsticky and obvious and, and, and occasionally clumsy and, 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 and really ramming it down your throat. But almost every performance, even the guy from who I always think of the guy from Serenity, uh, Mr. Universe. Mr. Universe. What's his name? David Crumholtz or something? Even he, he was, the, he was the motormouth character that, that basically he's the exposition machine slash nerd. And mm-hmm. even he is great to watch. Every scene with him in. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fabulous in this movie. Everyone is great. Uh, but I especially have a soft spot for Larry Miller, the stand-up comedian, who has all the ultra-sappy dad moments yeah. and over-the-top yeah. dad moments. And he owns them every single one of them um no matter how hacky they give him dialogue he completely i love him in all the christopher guest movies and i love watching his like five stages of drinking stand-up routine and and uh all that stuff but wow does he ever i yeah he was probably my great. favorite part he's of the great movie. but yeah i don't know i mean um Andrew Marina, what else is it about this movie that, uh, like, is it just kind of a popcorn movie, or do you feel like there is something more that, you know, 10 years later, people should be going back to this thing? Well, for me, it's a bit of a nostalgia trip, because I graduated in about the same time, and so right. it's sort of the high school that I grew up in kind of thing. So I, for me, I don't, I don't really know that I take anything else from it, but it's a movie that I've always really enjoyed, and I like revisiting every once in a while, and... 
I don't know, I'm a sucker for the romantic film and this one just has the right amount of schmaltz for me. It just sort of works. And the performances, like Kurt said, the performances here are much better than you would expect from a movie of this type. And you don't see a lot of these anymore. And so, yeah, I'm stuck in the 90s when it comes to romantic movies. I don't know what it is. Between this and Clueless, I'm done. Yeah, well, yeah, I think I think Kurt nailed it exactly. It's it's the characters and the actors that that make this movie. Because Sean, I totally agree with you. The the humor that's in this movie, I just it's it's eye rolling a lot of it. Like I would just go, oh god, really? But I, instantly you're just able to overlook it because boom, there's Heath Ledger just putting on a great performance, or or Julia Stiles with that smile, and I don't know, like the. Just like Kurt said, the chemistry of every single character in the movie is great. I mentioned Allison Janney. He mentioned Larry Miller. Um, even David Leisure, the, he's the uh, the detention teacher. Uh, he's great in it. <laughs> I love that actor. What else is he in? Because he's got the such a great thing, squinty face. The only thing I know him in is from a show from like the late 80s called Empty Nest. He was the funny neighbor next door. Uh, that's he was the only in, thing I can remember him from. He was in Galaxy Quest, and he was in Black Knight. <laughs> is he in oh, Twin God. Peaks? Is he in Is he in Twin Peaks uh, as the sort of uh, the clothing retailer guy? No, doesn't look like it. It reminded me of that David Lynch character that he's also in that on the air show, uh, but I guess not. But you're right. I, I totally recognized that face uh, in the movie. And how about the? And then there's the the English teacher too, the black guy. Did you mention him? I he's don't know great. Who he is, but he's great too. He's hilarious. Well, but again, it's just ridiculous. Like these teachers. No, I've never had a teacher that acted even close to like any of these. But I like that. It puts you in that. I mean, exactly. okay. Did anyone go to a school that looked like? Uh, like a massive castle like that school is insane um oh, you have the final shot with the when the closing credits are going um with that whatever the band is um playing up on the rooftop and the the camera just swoops over this school and like swivels around the whole perimeter and you're just like what is this well, i think it's it like, actually the school's people. name is what padua it's it's shakespeare's padua, padua yeah. the, the the fake town that a lot of his plays are set in there there was a lot of references in this I, I found it interesting though isn't the sonnet like the the, the sort of romantic comedy linchpin scene where julia styles has to do her homework assignment and uh she reads the her interpretation of the sonnet isn't that one from uh, Romeo and Juliet? I, I found that, um, that that particular sonnet's not actually from Taming of the Shrew. They actually and, – and there's a line reading of Macbeth at one point in the, uh, in the movie. So they, they, they had a few other um, Shakespeare references in the movie and not – I like the fact that they didn't rigorously wow. follow the, uh, the play or use the play's dialogue, although occasionally they borrowed a – a bit or two there, just a little nugget. I'll be honest. I am embarrassingly illiterate when it comes to Shakespeare stuff. I have read very little. I mean, I know the cliff note one Oh one on Shakespeare, but I, I haven't read hardly anything by him. So like none of those aspects, I, I don't look for any of those aspects or I, or I don't recognize them when I see them on, in either of the movies we watched for this. 
So I don't know. I don't take I don't take any Shakespeare away from it. But one thing um, about this movie too is it's very a lot of it's really typical of particularly '80s high school movies. Um, besides the crazy teachers, the implausibility and sort of the antics that that students do in this, like you have the typical house party where 500 people show up, um, you know, and trash the house, uh, that kind of thing, or like everybody is in woodworking shop but nobody's actually making what they're supposed to be doing they're all making <laughs> knives and bongs and echoes of know. starship troopers which went you know, nuts with that stuff <laughs> it just reminds me of just See, like meatballs and animal house and and those just crazy andrew can you enlighten us to the whole why is it so far in america it's not like that in canada um why is the high school experience the be-all and end-all? There's so much of American culture makes, like, the high school football or the uh, – the, the, it'll never get better after high school. Like, you're, you're absolutely right in that this movie does all of the big high school beats, like the big prom, the big house party, all of the politics happening out on the sports field um, – all the cliques uh, are, are over exaggerated, and and when I, I just yeah okay when I went to high school there that existed, but it in American movies that has always been amped up to eleven, yeah, I and I've never uh, I, I I've never understood whether it does echo the American high school experience. Uh, like no, I understand that it's taken to the nth degree, but I, I just. I've always found that fascinating about American culture is how loaded it is with um, your teenage years being the best years of your life. Maybe it's too much married with children and Al Bundy posing with a football. I, I don't know what it is, but this movie does, uh, I think unconsciously, because you said, like Marina said, it, it, it sort of puts it out there at the beginning that it's going to be fun. I have no problem with that. It, it throws the gauntlet down with that. And it puts it out there that it's going to be smart because the characters are smart in this movie for the most part. But then it still does this. So I'm thinking that the whole trumping up of the high school is somewhat accidental or unconscious in the, in the fact that that's just like the rules of the game. Well, you know, I don't know. I can only speak for the one high school that I went to. Um, which was a really big high school, though, at the time. But um, I think all the little aspects of how they trump it up are all based on some bit of reality, I guess. Like, I, I would say that, I don't know if it was the best time of my life, but certainly senior year of high school was loads of fun. Um, it's definitely one of the highlights of my life, I think. Um, but, uh you know, I don't know. I think they just take all the little bits of high school that are fun and good and then just, like you said, just amp them up to the nth degree. And uh, does, does anyone here watch uh, Veronica Mars? Because this movie, even though they're totally different intents, there was a lot of things, a lot of ways, particularly with the dad and uh, and also with this really smart central character and also the amping up of high school. I I, to me, this Veronica Mars, forget the TV sitcom they're going to make, which I'm sure will be ludicrous. Uh, Veronica Mars in spirit is almost like the follow on, even though it's taking a more 
detective Nancy Drew, um, Sam Spade approach to to it. Yeah, no, I've, I've never watched it. the show. I've had a couple people say that it's kind of fun, but I've never seen it. Yeah, me either. And, you know, keep in mind, we're 30 now. Maybe we've, or over 30, some of us. Uh, maybe if you, you've sort of forgotten what it's like. Like, for a high school kid, your whole world is that building, for the most part. I mean, at least, not maybe not your whole world, but a big, big chunk of it. Like, that's where all your social interactions happen that's where just everything you are involved in nearly revolves around that building and that community of people so so i mean well that's what makes the 2007 palm d'or winner the class such a compelling movie because it does capture that intensity of the high school experience or they're not even in high school in that movie with the mundaneness of nothing you're doing is particularly that important (laughs) exactly i mean they do have a little bit of the home life here with with larry miller but even at when they're at home and it's the two the two sisters and the dad what are they talking about they're talking about social interactions and what they do at school um, so everything in this movie revolves around high school. So you're looking at it from the character's point of view about how important high school is to them, I guess. Yeah, and I guess maybe part of what turned me off a little bit is is kind of some of the stuff that Kurt's talking about, how it kind of amps up the whole high school thing. But then, you know, it's interesting, like you watch like American Teen, which, you know, a lot of people say is very not... not uh, is very almost fictionalized in a way and but but it it makes you think that it is kind of reflective of what American high school is like and I mean I can't really relate to it but maybe well, other I can't people imagine can. that American high school is that much different from Canadian high school is it judging by the media uh that we get through here none of the all the schools in these big American uh like from brick to uh 10 things I hate about you to um, uh, like the, the, uh, the last American virgin, which is from the eighties. None of the high schools in my city where I grew up, which is just outside of Toronto. None of the high schools had more than a thousand people. There was never a high school. Like the high school I went to had 900 people. It was, it wasn't that big. And it had, you know, from grade nine to, to, to grade 13 because we have an extra grade or we did back in the day um, hmm, okay. so we had five years worth of students in one school and it was less than a thousand and every school in the town where I grew up was that size and some of them were even smaller so when you look at Veronica Mars or you look at 10 things I hate about you and you see these unbelievably massive schools um it just it's alien to look at uh, i i i'm well, sure in I, toronto there's a couple schools that are that that push the 2000 student mark but i mean you look at all these shows and whatever set in like orange county and california and the schools look like they have like 5000 people in them well yeah i mean i graduated in a cla- just my class of 500 and that's small now when i talk to kids in the area now i mean their classes are 700 800 mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, crazy. So I, 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 I'm surprised you don't have really big. My class was 45. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so definitely a difference in how you would look at something like this. And again, realize you're watching movies. You're not. Oh, of, of course, of yeah, course. Obviously. But 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 like I said, I, I mean they are based on small bits of reality. So like when they're out yeah. on the football field talking or whatever, 
yeah, I mean, that's where some of your interaction is going to happen. You're going to run outside and search for your buddy out on the, you know, or, or whatever. So, and they're big schools and you have to walk around and run into people all the time. So, I mean, there's bits of it that are based in reality. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, any other, uh, thoughts about 10 things I hate about you? I was disappointed when Alice and Janney only had a few scenes at the beginning. I was, I was, oh, but I, she has the best line. She Come does. On. I did not even know she's in the movie. I have a huge thing for that actress because, well, in the Gus Van Sant connection, she plays Matt Dillon's sister in To Die For, and she is riveting in that movie. And, uh, yeah, she plays the art teacher in Ghost World, which she's also awesome. Uh, and, mm-hmm. And then, of course, she, the ultimate character actor couple, even though I'm not a gigantic fan of the movie, the ultimate character actor pairing of all time is her and J.K. Simmons in Juno. Uh, like, they're just yeah. fabulous. And she has the best scene in Juno. But, um, yeah, so the fact that she popped up there, uh, I was like, okay, this movie's already way high up my books just for having her in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she has the couple scenes at the beginning, and she, she drops out. I, I wanted... Actually, I wanted more of all the teachers. <laughs> all the teachers, they they played that so fun and so opposite to what most, like, you know, when you think of teachers in school, you think of um, the teacher in Fast Time in Ridgemount High that's always sparring with Sean Penn's Spicoli, or you think of um, Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller, uh, and the teachers are usually... Uh, uh, militant or passive and the teachers in this are all slackers like the students even even if the english teacher actually does give shakespeare an interesting rhythm because he gives the original version of that sonnet uh, in almost like rap or like in a certain rhythm uh but he he talks shit at his students like awesomely uh in oh, ways it. that I you just can't even her, imagine when he, when he kicks her out um, just because he's so used to kicking her out of the class, even though she just said, no, no, I think that's a really good assignment. That's, I'm looking forward to it. And he just goes, get out. Yeah. And she's like, what? Cause she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of my class. Cause he thinks she's mocking him. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that, see, and that's where the movie's smart. Like it actually has the guy not understand that it wasn't sarcasm. Like he's totally treating it. That's, I'm glad you brought that scene up because that is what makes 10 things I hate about you. That's what. It doesn't quite elevate it to the level of something like Election, which came out the same year, which I think is a better film. Mm-hmm. But like Marina said, Election is meant to be very, well, it's Alexander Payne. It's meant to be, you're meant to suffer and mock and laugh at the characters. Whereas um, 10 Things I Hate About You, it it wears or shows its bubblegum all the time. But it also shows that you don't have to dumb it down for it to be... Uh, Bubblegum. I, I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. And uh, not to belabor the point, but this movie, w- when you go through these characters and these actors, like like you said, Kurt, you wanted more from the teachers. I feel like with every single actor in this, I it because of this movie, it makes me want to go through and watch their entire filmography of all of them because they're just so great in this, and particularly Styles and Ledger. And it's funny, I've pretty much seen most, if not all, of the films that both of those those actors have been in. Me and too. 
there's a lot of crap in both of their filmographies, but even the crap, for me at least, is watchable. I don't know, there's some magnetism with both of them that I really, really like, particularly styles. I, I never really thought much of Heath Ledger's acting. thought he was always like eye candy. And I mean, he does, I don't know, he has a nice chemistry on screen that I do really like. But uh, styles in particular, even in like really shitty movies, She's always really good, and she elevates all of the shitty movies into something that's more than shit. Have any totally. of you have any of you seen uh, the business of strangers with uh, its um, Stockard Channing and Julia Stiles as two corporate like women in a corporation? Julia Stiles is the junior, and Stockard Channing is like the potential CEO of the company, and uh, they have a. Like they get stuck in an airport together and they pick up a guy and both of them are fighting with each other. So they basically almost have a contest of seduction of this guy. It's a fabulous, fabulous fucking overlooked masterpiece. And that was one of the first movies that I saw because I never saw this movie, 10 Things I Hate About You, when it came out. And I think The Business of Strangers was the first place I saw her. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll watch anything with this actress in it. But then she, somewhere she got a reputation with the exception of the Bourne flicks of being sort of a, yeah, like a, a failed rising star. But but you watch the business of strangers and she knocks it out of the park. And especially when she gets to act off Stockard Channing, who is a super seasoned, awesome, strong actor. But I mean, if if you look at her filmography though, I mean, she's been in a lot of stuff that's not exactly good or great. Uh, some of it's just passable at best, but she's really good in all of them. And the movies are all, you know, they're watchable and some of them are really great. And, you know, because they're most of them, like looking here, most of them are sort of in this like sort of teen demographic sort of thing, like, you know, Save the Last Dance or Oh, or even Hamlet, which is the version that she did with uh, Ethan Hawke. Chalk but, up three I mean, for her. <laughs> Sorry? Chalk up three Shakespearean adaptations for her. Yeah, yep. she, she's done a whole bunch. But she's always really good in them. And the movies, I think, really are better because of her. And n- none of them are all that bad. They're just sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're targeting this teen de- demographic and people just sort of overlook them. But there are good things in all of them. <laughs> You're totally right. I Save the Last Dance. I love that movie. And the only reason I love it is because of her. Mm-hmm. And I like oh, and I've seen a guy thing. I've seen I've seen almost everything that she's been in, except for the business of strangers. And like I don't think I ever saw the prince in me. Well, Andrew but probably gets sick of me. Been. You probably get sick of me constantly going on about how compellingly watchable Balthazar Comicers' uh, "A Little Trip to Heaven" is with her mm-hmm. and uh, Forrest Whitaker um, yeah. and uh, Peter Coyote. Um, yeah, I, she and she's fabulous in in that movie, and it's not aimed at the team. I, I don't know what I think that movie went straight to DVD because no one knew who it was aimed at. Um, mm. What about she hasn't uh, been in a good leading role for since I don't even know how long in a good film? She needs this girl needs to be in more stuff in the lead. Is in well, the opinion. Omen was actually pretty solid. If but anybody she, bothered to see it, it's actually a pretty good solid remake. But she's not even really the lead. She's hardly in it that much, is she? Oh, well, she plays the mother. She has a couple of big scenes. But, I, I mean, the, the movie's about the kid, right? Right. I want a really? movie where her she drives the movie. That's what I want to see. Because I think it would be a fucking knockout of a movie if they could find one. 
Like even in the Bourne, the Bourne movie is like she's only there for you know ten minutes tops. Yeah, but she's great in all three of them. She's awesome. Her scenes are awesome. Totally. So yeah, I want to see her lead and and drive a movie by herself and see what happens. Well, go back and rent the business of strangers and uh, and let me know how that one works for you. What about uh, I was going to bring up. Uh, she's the man. Have any of you guys seen that? Because this was also a sh- sort of teen comedy based on Shakespeare, written by the same screenwriters. It's shit. Really? <laughs> it's total shit. It doesn't work at all. It's not funny. The lead actress, whatever her name is, is she, I think she was on a TV show. She's just not appealing. That movie relies on her, and it just doesn't work. So, it has a couple of funny scenes, but in general, it's just crap. So is that proof then that um, 10 Things I Hate About You, it's the actors that make it special? I would say so. Definitely. I, would say I think so. we are all in agreement on on that one because all of your problems, Sean, seem to be function of the the overall setup and screen writing. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, all, and the rest of us all love the acting and the uh, characters and and the chemistry it's 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 a function of you see these words on the page and uh you know they set up everything and then they throw the actors in and uh, uh you know it's a sink or swim kind of situation and it's impressive to have such a large ensemble and almost like a a sharing of what exactly the lead is because if you just added up the number of words spoken then uh wouldn't david crumholtz or mr universe be the main character. He has the lion's share of lines in the movie, yet he's obviously very much a supporting player in the movie. I mean... Well, I was wondering about him because there's him and um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And of course, Levitt kind of... It seems like he's going to be like one of the main characters and then he kind of like takes background for a bit and then he comes back. But like in terms of uh, the taming of the shrew, like are there specific characters that they map to? They all map to it. In fact, they have all um, they've all got their names. Like if you look at the characters' names, and then they didn't want to make it overly Shakespearean with the names. So um, what they did was uh, like they sort of Americanized parts of the names so that you could still get the the uh, mapping of. Uh, who they're supposed to of be. Of who they are. Um, and then when they couldn't quite, when, the, you know, the characters only had first names or whatever, they gave them, like, I think the uh, Julia Stiles and her sister and Larry Miller's character, are, their last name is uh, Stratford, which is the main place where, um, you know, all the Shakespearean plays were put on <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, and has a minor echo in, in Ontario as well. Um, yeah, so... It, I think it follows the play, you know, as much as they inject all the other high schooly kind of stuff and they change the settings, but it follows the structure pretty good. And I think that's what makes it stand out because no other team movie has that kind of aggressive plotting, for lack of a better phrase. It's quite convoluted, the scheme. And even when these sort of dumb teen movies where you go, this is so unrealistic that they would bother with doing all this stuff, it it, it feels fairly natural in the movie. I I, I liked the... It's just like Brick. Brick totally sells it, too. Except Brick is more like a Dashiell Hammett kind of vibe rather than the Shakespeare vibe. Um, Last thing I would say regarding the screenwriter, apparently she did write um, 
Legally Blonde, and I actually kind of like Le- Legally Blonde quite a bit. So, but legal, but, but Legally can. Blonde is Legally Blonde from a screenplay point of view is as fucking clumsy as clumsy. Like right, Legally yeah, Blonde is embarrassingly obvious. That is the is the you know Reese Witherspoon performance I think is probably what sells that movie too. So they they also wrote the house money which was terrible so <laughs> they didn't not a, a good track record <laughs> but i've they got a, i've right got cats. a huge soft spot for anna ferris i haven't seen too many movies that she's been in but like may and uh, her little bit in lost in translation like they're both real supporting roles but she's inspired and i wanted to see that greg Araki uh, smiley face smiley face um, is awesome because the trailer she looks awesome like she looks like james franco level steen ceiling in and she is oh uh, see now i just want to go and rent that uh so this guy has a knack for accidentally getting good actors uh, or or actors in his shitty screenplays or or shitty's not is this too strong but they are kind of blunt mm-hmm. yeah all right so um i guess we're gonna wrap things up then um, sounds good to me so, um, unlike previous uh, episodes, we don't have a poll that we're um, using to determine the next episode. We've already set it, and we've already decided it's going to be a massive uh, special on the Alien Quadrilogy. So, I don't know how we're going to do that. I don't know if it's going to be one podcast or if we're going to have to do it in two pieces or something, because it could, I don't know, potentially I could see it being a very long discussion. So... Um, either way, go out, rewatch all of the alien films and, uh, within a month, probably more like two months, I would say, uh, we will be back with the next episode of the movie club podcast to discuss those. And we will have a poll up for the episode that will follow that, which will go up on the site this week as well. So, um, any other final thoughts, guys? I'm looking forward. Love. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to the uh, to the Alien quadrilogy. I watch it. I watch most of them once a year already, and I'm hoping that you guys will make the trip up to my place because I'm going to try and take an entire day and screen all four of them back to back to back to back. <sighs> um, That's going to be interesting. which is massive tonal changes. So uh, I really looking forward to the next uh, ex- next episode. Well, I think it's one that a lot of people will probably want to uh, kind of join in the discussion because obviously there are movies that a lot of people have seen and a lot of people love, some more than others, obviously. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, don't forget to visit the website, movieclubpodcast.com, where you can uh, stop by and uh, give your comments and thoughts on uh, the movies we just talked about. And if you want to suggest... Uh, movies for future episodes feel free to email us or uh, leave a comment on the website as well and i guess that's about it so uh until next time we'll see you guys later bye-bye when i first came to london i was only 16 with a fiver in my pocket and my old dancing bag i went down to the dilly to check out the scene but I soon ended up upon the old main drag There are the he-mails and the she-mails Paraded in style And the old man with the money would bless you